UNFTR. We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. U to the N to the FTR. I'm fucking the Republic, beating people where they are. Left, right, center, make you laugh, make you cry. Max brings the heat of a basic white guy. Could have run for office, could have got up off his ass. Hey. Could've made something other than a fucking podcast. But here we are, yo. The UNFPR show. Many faces ripping the script with the fuckers around the globe. And Brittany brings it back for Tom McGovern. Let's go. On fuckers, on Canuckers, you're a fuckers 99. On the fuckers and some fuckers, they all like they fucking mind. From New York to out of Gami, Halifax, and New Zealand. Say it loud, say it with me. Yo, yo fuck Milton Friedman. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by over-caffeinated members, Nathan Surst, Nathan E., Nettie Hugger One, Michelle H., Matthew, and the memory of Nettie McGee. We are back with the second installment of our three-part series on public education. Today's focus is the legal history of education in the United States. But first, a quick review. In part one, we steeped ourselves in the field of education, exploring the wondrous world of curriculum, pedagogy, and language. Despite our universal interaction with schooling in this country, it's amazing how little we know about the discipline itself. There is so much behind teaching that we take for granted. Now, building on this knowledge, we zoomed out to examine measurements and outcomes, how we stack up against the rest of the industrialized world, where we have the biggest learning gaps, the budget and staffing challenges stemming from the Great Recession and amplified by COVID, and how public education generally is funded in this country. We left off at an important place in our story, the opposition to compulsory public education. It seems like every right worth fighting and dying for over this country at some point comes up for review and renewal. To the conservative American mind, all progress is bad progress. Voting rights, 200 years to get them, then they spent the last 50 trying to stuff them back into the box. Roe v. Wade settled law? Hardly. Everything is up for debate. Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, Fun while it lasted, why would education be any different? At the very end of part one, I spoke their quiet part out loud. The right to education is not in the Constitution, and no Supreme Court has ever called it a, quote, fundamental right. Now, we're going to talk more about this today as we move through the history of education. You can't know where we're headed unless we understand from whence we came. You see, the new right can't simply strike down public education as this radical activist court has done with abortion rights, for example. It's not a yes or no question or black and white belief. The attack on education has and will look a lot different. You know how they're going to come at you? I do, Consigliere. I do. UNFTR is also sponsored by over-caffeinated members, Cringy, Joa, G. Wookie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S., Cindy S., Brie X., Brian, Awesome A., Alfie and Flash, and Asshole. Chapter 4. Phase 1 Expansion. The 16th Lot. All right, so let's visit with Derek Black and dig into the heart of his book, Schoolhouse Burning. 
I mentioned it in the first episode as the perfect complement to the research for this series because he addresses the central tension between America's desire to provide access to education and the legal protections that encompass this right and desire. So let's start from the beginning with this awesome nugget. Quote, every bound volume of the United States legal code begins with a section called front matter. The front matter includes the nation's four organic laws in chronological order. The Declaration of Independence, Articles of Confederation, the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, and the U.S. Constitution. I'm guessing history buff ears probably perked up with the mention of the Northwest Ordinances, but for most people, this is actually a rather startling grouping. The failed Articles of Confederation? Okay. Declaration of Independence and the Constitution? Obviously. But the Northwest Ordinances? Chances are you haven't heard much about them since intro to U.S. history in middle school. Or at all. So let's spend a minute here. Independence was one. The founders were in the process of trying to establish a government that would unify the colonies and set some sort of guidelines for how new territories would be established and admitted. We all know the single biggest issue that plagued these discussions, and that was obviously the question of slavery. And this was way before the Missouri Compromise, more than 30 years on. Expansion was already inevitable and occurring. So we're in this weird nether region. You mean taint? What the fuck? She told you to stop using nether region. Right, right, okay. Uh, so we're in this weird purgatory with a fragile central government, states doing their own thing, and settlers moving west and displacing native tribes. So the fledgling nation passed what the Oxford Press Concise History of the American Republic called, quote, the most momentous act in the Confederation's history, end quote. For the sake of accuracy, I should point out that there were two rounds of the ordinances, one in 1785 and the other in 1787, and it's the latter that we're going to reference. Boring! Oh, that's nice. Okay, so the ordinance attempted to organize expansion in a manner that kept the territories loyal to the Confederation without seeming too much like a royal colonial system. So these territories would have fairly liberal organizing principles, but there were a few musts that came with the territorial claims. Again, a concise history. Quote, six articles of compact guaranteed the customary civil rights and liberties and declared religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools, and the means of education shall forever be encouraged, end quote. So at this time, governance of the country is faltering somewhat under the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution has yet to be ratified. Yet time was marching on, and so was westward expansion. So the Northwest Ordinance was a way to manage expansion while the founders attempted to corral the existing colonies into a federal structure that would bind us together while allowing a degree of independence for the states. The one thing, however, that was seen as a given was public education. On this topic, there was unanimity among the framers that if the Republic was going to advance on the world stage and stay together, it required an educated citizenry. The obvious caveat applies here. This was originally conceived as an exclusively white right. That's not to say there weren't exceptions, particularly in the northern states, but on balance, it was too premature to consider the more universal aspects of education. And this would be subordinate to the larger questions of slavery and suffrage. Here's Black to elucidate the importance of education as the founders contemplated expansion. 
Quote, the Northwest Ordinances of 1785 and 87 placed public education at the literal center of the nation's plan for geographic expansion and statehood in the territories. The 85 Ordinance specified how every square inch of the territories would be divided into counties and towns. Every new town had to set aside one-ninth of its land and one-third of its natural resources for the financial support of public education. And every town had to reserve one of its lots for the operation of a public school. What the territories really needed was money. The United States didn't have any money, so it gave what it had, land." End quote. Every town yet to be created in America was to be divided into 36 lots and the 16th lot was to be set aside for a public school. Much prior to even the Civil War, the founders imagined a nation that held education as the core of its promise. There was remarkable alignment among the founders to establish a universal standard of education, with Jefferson once again taking charge of the pen to author a bill that went into tremendous detail about funding, teacher compensation, core materials, and administrative duties. But the nascent nation wasn't prepared for the biggest lift of all, new taxes. And so it fell to the states with the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, written by none other than John Adams, leading the way for all other states to eventually follow. And again, at the heart of it was education. Rounding it out today, UNFTR is sponsored by over-caffeinated members W. Jeremy D., William N., Tony, Sultan, Specker, Ryan F., Rodrigo G., Rob Nasby, Prof G., and Pete M. Additionally, this episode of UNFTR is brought to you by Unfucking Pro, Anna, a.k.a. Asoke. Chapter 5, Phase 2, Reconstruction We began with the reminder that education is not a constitutional right, and no Supreme Court has codified it into a fundamental right. Now, we're going to parse that a bit more when we examine some crucial decisions, but it's important to keep this in the front of our minds as we move through the story. Now, if you're an originalist or a textualist, this doesn't necessarily mean that compulsory education is unconstitutional or not part of the framers' intent, especially since we have Jefferson's words in a specific, albeit failed, amendment calling for exactly this. The objection, by the way, to Jefferson's amendment was over money. More precisely, they just couldn't agree to levy a tax for education. The fragile republic was broke and thinking more about how it was going to defend itself from foreign interventions. Now, having said that, the absence of education in the Constitution doesn't mean it's unprotected by rule and precedent. And in fact, it's one of the few enumerated rights included in every single state constitution. So fast forward four score from the Northwest Ordinance to see how this eventually came to pass. Again, Derek Black. Quote, all 50 state constitutions include an education clause or other language that requires the state to provide public education. Most of these clauses were first enacted or substantially amended in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. After the Civil War, no state would ever again enter the Union without an education clause, end quote. Now, the most important outcome here should be obvious. The end of slavery? Holding the Union together? No. The creation of the white savior high school movie trope. There are a lot of people who live in your neighborhood who choose not to get on that bus. What do they choose to do? They choose to go out and sell drugs. They choose to go out and kill people. They choose to do a lot of other things, but they choose not to get on that bus. If the Civil War was lost, 
Whose dangerous minds would Michelle Pfeiffer have saved? Been spending most of their lives living in a gangster's paradise. We wouldn't know which side was the blind side. We wouldn't have found Forrester. And who would have freed the Freedom Riders? Because if you were saying that Hillary Swank isn't hot, then you're saying I'm not hot. Because obviously I'm not as hot as Hillary Swank. President Lincoln wasted little time trying to bring the nation together at the conclusion of the war. In a letter to General Nathaniel Banks, he urged the general to, quote, adopt some practical system by which the two races could gradually lift themselves out of their old relation to each other and both come out better prepared for the new. Education for young blacks should be included in the plan, end quote. The presence of troops was essential to the post-war efforts to both heal the nation and compel the southern states to comply with Union demands. But for as much as Lincoln is associated with this period, it was Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner who emerged as the true hero of the brief era of Reconstruction. They think he's a righteous dude. It was Sumner who badgered Lincoln into codifying education into a new constitutional framework for the states modeled on the northern concept of education. Though it should be said that many of the southern and western states were all too keen to adopt education formally without any such insistence. But as always, there were the questions of segregation and funding. General Banks was tasked with corralling Louisiana after the war, and his first order of business was to enforce the adoption of public education. His second measure is one that even the northern states had yet to figure out, and it was the question of funding. Here's Banks. Quote, for the full accomplishment of these purposes and the performance of the duties enjoined upon them, the board shall have the full power and authority to assess and level a school tax upon real and personal property in each and every before-mentioned school district, end quote. Black details just how fervent the desire for education was among the formerly enslaved class in the South. Quote, through the end of 1865, over 90,000 freedmen were attending 740 schools staffed by 1,314 teachers. By 1870, 150,000 students were enrolled under the direction of 3,300 teachers. Attendance in some cities even began to surpass the northern districts. Even still, readmittance to the Union remained an open question. To maneuver this slow and painful process, Congress facilitated conventions throughout the South to create a consistent framework for admittance. And to help guide education efforts, it created a federal Department of Education to work with the freedmen to push a national agenda that incorporated formerly enslaved people as well. It's important to note that despite the Union's victory, not everyone suddenly became a Federalist. Many in the North, and obviously in the South, were still wary of too much concentrated federal power. So this would play out in many different ways in the years to come. But here, Black makes an important point. In contrast to the issues that proved the most bitter for Southern states to swallow, the lack of resistance to the creation of a federal department for education and the universal acceptance of education provisions in state charters and constitutions indicated just how serious the proposition of education was to all involved in healing the union. Even still, the big stuff would have to be hashed out before getting down to brass tacks with education. So let's go through the big ticket items as Black lays them out. The Reconstruction Act of 1867 spelled out four distinct conditions for readmission. First, the states had to form a constitution of government in conformity with the Constitution of the United States in all respects. Second, the elective franchise shall be enjoyed by all such personas as have the qualification herein stated. 
Third, states must submit those constitutions to Congress, which will determine whether they are consistent with the U.S. Constitution. Finally, states must adopt the 14th Amendment, which, among other things, prohibited states from denying anyone equal protection under the law or depriving individuals of life, liberty, or property without due process. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. Okay, so this part is a standard piece of important American history. Here's where Sumner played a critical role in clarifying the importance and de facto constitutionality of education. Sumner insisted on including an amendment that required public education and funding. This alone wasn't an issue, but his amendment also included a provision that explicitly called for integration. See, Sumner was a purist and an abolitionist. In his mind, freedmen were just that, nothing more, nothing less, entitled to the same rights as everyone else. Obviously, the Southern states didn't see it that way. So the ensuing debate was not over education as a right, but whether integrated education was a condition of admittance to the Union. The amendment died as a tie vote, and then the states quickly busied themselves creating artificial buffers to prevent newly freed black people from accessing education. So egregious were their efforts that it forced Congress to take Sumner's amendment up once again, this time passing. Yay! But without the call for integration. Aww. So education would be open and available to all, but the seeds of segregation and funding disparities were planted. One interesting twist and unintended consequence that would set up a major challenge down the road started out just a little south of North Carolina. Just a little bit south of North Carolina. Thank you, Dino. South Carolina created something that is seen today as a form of voter suppression, the poll tax. Today, we understand this is one of the primary tools of voter suppression that would be unfairly and subjectively wielded to prevent black people from accessing the vote. But in 1867, when this was established, it was actually a good faith effort to support public education as it was the primary mechanism utilized to fund the construction and maintenance of schools. Now, importantly, something else developed. Just a little bit south of North Carolina. The debate over compulsory education. We take this for granted today, but it strikes at the heart of these episodes and what I really want to convey to unfuckers about the war on education. Again, black. Quote, some delegates had the right and liberty, they said, to decide for themselves whether their kids should labor or learn. It was not a bad argument. A similar argument made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court half a century later, but the court validated the decision that South Carolina and several other states had made. It is fully within the state's power, if not its solemn duty, to see that kids are educated. End quote. Hopefully, a picture is emerging surrounding the challenges associated with education and how historically linked it is to democratic principles such as suffrage. It's fascinating to see how things like poll taxes, created with good intentions, would first be widely adopted and then weaponized. Or how preserving the 16th lot would lay the groundwork for funding disparities stemming from redlining. How the best efforts to include federal constitutional provisions from Jefferson to Sumner were thwarted by racism. And ultimately, how all of these factors set the state for a separate but wholly unequal system of education in the United States. Chapter 6, Phase 3, 
desegregation. Well, I suppose we can't talk about desegregation without talking about segregation. With state constitutions guaranteeing access to education and enfranchisement of formerly enslaved people, there was a brief moment in American history when economic and political assimilation seemed attainable. Alas, it didn't last. The Johnson administration would prove disastrous, and once the North began to withdraw troops from the southern states, a different picture quickly emerged. And the two fundamental and newfound rights of education and suffrage would come under vicious attack both in the courts and in the streets. Poll taxes became literacy tests, with Mississippi leading the way. Multiple states followed this path by passing literacy and character tests that were subjective, to put it mildly. Mississippi was also the first to pass legislation requiring separate schools for, quote, white and colored races, end quote. It didn't take long for others to follow suit. One by one, they fell in line. South Carolina, North Carolina, Alabama, Virginia, Louisiana, Georgia, Oklahoma, Kentucky. These measures would thankfully fall under scrutiny, but here's where Mississippi hatched the most dastardly and enduring scheme of all. Because formulas for funding were still in the early stages, these southern states decided to exploit this by putting more control of the purse strings and spending discretion in the hands of local officials. The possibilities were suddenly endless. State constitutions might prohibit them from barring education for all, but funding was a different matter entirely. Once again, the other states followed suit and gradually took power away from the state bodies and handed it over to the local districts. And you can imagine where the dollars went. Some districts went so far as to simply withhold funding for black schools because they could. Ah, horseshit! Of course, there were challenges to this. But the Supreme Court doomed generations of such challenges based on an 1896 case called Plessy v. Ferguson, involving a dispute over whether rail cars could be segregated. So the court's logic at the time was so long as there were cars that were exclusively for black people, there was no inherent discrimination in having a white-only rail car. This would be the basis for separate but equal. This would remain the law of the land, until three brilliant minds teamed up to begin the slow, steady, and painful legal process of tearing it all apart. And it began with a gentleman named Walter White. That's right. Now, say my name. Not that Walter White. Walter White, the head of the NAACP in 1933. White enlisted the support of the organization's special counsel, Charles Houston. Together, they plotted to pull the threads of segregation one at a time until the whole thing came apart. It would be an arduous task. But thankfully, they had another brilliant mind and young talent at their disposal. Thurgood Marshall. In 1934, Marshall graduated magna cum laude from Howard. The following year, he started a private practice and eventually succeeds his mentor, Charles Houston, to become the NAACP's chief counsel. During this time, Marshall systematically dismantles the 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson ruling that upheld racial segregation under the separate but equal doctrine. He argued 32 civil rights cases before the Supreme Court, winning 29. That's right. Win after win after win, Marshall and company were building a defense that would ultimately paint the Supreme Court into a corner in 1950 when it consolidated four cases, 
one from each of Kansas, Virginia, Delaware, and South Carolina, into what we now know as Brown v. the Board of Education. The arguments put forward were masterful. I'm no legal scholar, so I don't want to do their case a disservice. But for all the ways they wound up attacking segregation, the court ultimately found its way to one central theme, the role of education in democracy. Here's perhaps the most famous excerpt from the Supreme Court opinion on Brown v. the Board of Education. Today, education is perhaps the most important function of state and local governments. Compulsory school attendance laws and the great expenditures for education both demonstrate our recognition of the importance of education to our democratic society. It is required in the performance of our most basic public responsibilities, even service in the armed forces. It is the very foundation of good citizenship. Today, it is a principal instrument in awakening the child to cultural values, in preparing him for later professional training, and helping him to adjust normally to his environment. In these days, it is doubtful that any child may reasonably be expected to succeed in life if he is denied the opportunity of an education. Such an opportunity where the state has undertaken to provide it is a right which must be made available to all on equal terms. There's no way to overstate how important this decision was and how clever the team of Marshall, Houston, and White truly was. But as Black notes, the court stopped short of an important milestone, something that had eluded leaders in the nation since Jefferson attempted to include education as an ordained liberty in the promise of America and Sumner first tried to integrate schools. Education in this decision and in every important decision subsequently was afforded greater and greater legal protections in all ways but one. Education has never been absolutely guaranteed as a fundamental right of citizenship. Now, we know this from specific examples such as Chief Justice Warren's draft in a related case called Bowling v. Sharp. Here's Black. Quote, Records show that the initial draft of the Bowling opinion did, in fact, declare education to be a fundamental liberty and struck down school segregation as an arbitrary deprivation of that liberty. But when he circulated the draft, the two other justices were reluctant to use that language, primarily because the court's prior invocation of fundamental rights in the early 1900s had proved to be a grossly misguided attempt to second-guess legislative prerogatives. The court later overturned those mistakes, but it had left a bad taste in the mouths of some of the justices for any talk of fundamental rights." End quote. So what I glean from this is that the court, for all its foibles and flaws, and we're certainly bearing witness to them now, does tend to rule on standing precedent and constitutionality and hesitates to make bold pronouncements that could be viewed as additive to the original intent and language of the Constitution. We explored this briefly when talking about Roe v. Wade and the difference between enumerated powers and penumbral rights that are implied. The court typically provides legal reasoning as to why certain powers or rights are or are not explicit or implied. Anyway, I'm pressing this line of thinking for a reason, so hold that thought. Let's stay with the courts for a minute to explain what happened next and how the crusade to unwind all of the protections from the Voting Rights Act, Brown v. the Board of Ed, Civil Rights Act, Fair Housing Act, and all other progressive priorities would begin with the election of Richard Nixon. Lewis Powell is from Virginia. But like another great Virginian, Chief Justice Marshall, Lewis Powell is recognized by his legal colleagues throughout the nation as being a man who represents not just Virginia and the South. 
He is first and foremost a very great American. William Rehnquist has been outstanding in every intellectual endeavor he has undertaken. Nixon would appoint four justices in all. Harry Blackman, Warren Berger, William Rehnquist, and Lewis Powell. You may remember Powell from our episodes talking about the infamous Powell Memo, which many consider the spiritual wake-up call for the business community to curb the powers of the federal government. That fucking Lewis Powell. As Black writes, quote, Berger and Rehnquist quickly began outlining the limits of school desegregation, limits that capitulated to and threw fuel on the fire of the civil rights backlash, end quote. The court essentially established an intent standard. The burden of proof related to segregation now fell on the plaintiff, who had to prove that there was an intent to separate students by race. Housing, redistricting, redlining, inequality, none of these mattered at face value any longer. Somewhere along the line, someone had to explicitly state that children must be separated by race. And the court was just getting warmed up. The real fuck you came from the pen of Powell, who wrote the majority opinion for a case called San Antonio v. Rodriguez. It doesn't get as much attention as the other major education reform cases, but it's crucial. As Black writes, quote, The court in Rodriguez made it clear that the good old days of expanding education rights were behind it, end quote. So here's the upshot. The funding mechanisms in San Antonio were disparate and highly unequal. The result was obvious and predictable. Black schools were severely underfunded and therefore underperforming and falling apart. But when faced with the decision as to whether equity and access would prevail over discretion and whim, Powell sided with the state as an arbiter of where and how funds are dispensed under the logic that, quote, the importance of a service performed by the state does not determine whether it must be regarded as fundamental, end quote. That was it. With the Rodriguez decision, Powell firmly sided with the state's rights argument and pulled on yet another critical thread in education equity. Lewis Powell was never a judge prior to his appointment to the Supreme Court. He'd never even argued a case in front of the Supreme Court. He was a board member of Philip Morris and represented the Tobacco Institute as a lawyer. And, of course, he authored the now infamous Powell Memo as a response to the advocacy of Ralph Nader, which made him a darling of the Heritage Foundation and put him on Richard Nixon's radar. This fucking prick cast the deciding vote and based his opinion on the fact that education was not explicitly protected in the Constitution. It was not, as he said, fundamental. Remember when I said, hold that thought? We'll keep holding it. Here endeth part two. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hoo-ha! Welcome into Post Show Musings. So that was part two. Part one, we covered just the magic of education. All of the language and the things associated with it. Kind of more of a, a present-day take and analysis on, on education and how we view it in the public realm. 
Then we went all the way back in this episode to talk about the legal protections surrounding education at the state level. As a primer for the third part, it might be helpful, not necessary, but it might be helpful to go back and check out our episode on the Convention of States. That is the new rights mechanism to try and rewrite the Constitution. But it's also a good primer on what it means to actually call a convention, even if it's at the state level. So, spoiler alert for part three, part three is all about the privatization scheme. That's where we draw Uncle Fucknugget back into things. We talk about his concept for school choice, which really became a perverted mantra on the right and gave, I mean, it basically just created Betsy DeVos and the DeVos family and their kind of religious crusade to steal money from the public sector. So it's very difficult to rewrite a state constitution. That's not to say that they're not going to try and do it. Much easier to attack the funding sources. So how do you defund public education? You really can't do it because it is a state right and it's a constitutional right. And as we've seen from the very beginning, even the most fervent, racially divided southern states still wanted education for all. They just didn't want to be together when they did it. But education, they viewed as a fundamental right. So it's very unpopular to say to people, we don't want to have education and it should be the choice to go back and labor on the farm as it was the choice back then or to go to school, right? You know, nobody should be able to force me to go to school. But that argument is seeping into the public consciousness and the way that they're accomplishing it is by defunding the public schools, setting up charter schools, more private schools, school vouchers and homeschooling under the idea that, hey, we can do this ourselves. We don't need the state to dictate to us how education occurs, you know, what the best curriculum might be. And we certainly don't need your zany progressive ideas about kitty litter and bathrooms, you know, messing up the entire conversation. So they're throwing all of these things into the mix and sort of this gish gallop philosophy of like attacking everything from every side. But the core of it is that they're stealing money from public schools. And that's what we're going to talk about in part three. I just felt like it was necessary to, first of all, establish how important curriculum development is, how we really don't understand the language of education, the importance of education, and the evolution of philosophy in education. Because if we really understood that, we wouldn't be so quick to just throw everybody into homeschooling or let charter schools decide what curriculum and standards should be, right? So I thought that was necessary. And then to look at the legal protections that do exist and the way that they're going to get around them. So these were our foundational episodes to get to the third chapter in this. And the whole point of that third chapter is to basically identify for progressives how they're coming at us, how they're going to try to accomplish this and why they think they are so ethically and morally righteous in their crusade to attack and, and destroy public education in this country. So it is quite a journey to go down. Uh, it can be quite depressing, but uh, you know the one hopeful aspect of this, I think, is if we can enjoin together to lift up teachers, to lift up public educators in the way that they were once seen as you know heroes in the community. Because a lot of the things that are thrown at educators really aren't true. They lack a lot of substance. So the, the attacks come at the union level. The attacks come with, you know, uh, against their sort of progressive ideals and what have you. But they're really just, they're, they're obfuscating the real issues here. And that is these people are educators 
in a system that is designed to help lift our kids and make them better human beings in the world. And we can't let them do it. I really think that it starts with loving teachers again and loving the field of education and kind of admiring the craft and the discipline, because then the other areas we can fight them in courts and we can fight them, you know, at school board meetings and we can fight them and we could be we could wind up drowning out their voices and we can attack the think tanks and do all those things. But we can't do it if we're not all coming from a place of love for the discipline and wanting to do better for our kids. So hopefully that's one of the overarching themes that we tease out here. Hello, I'm here. But I don't know that that's fair because what about I'm thinking of a friend we have who has a daughter in elementary school and their teacher is definitely not progressive by any measure. And she's tried to bring some like, not even progress, like she tried to bring a book about a little girl with a disability and the teacher wouldn't read it to the class. And there have been multiple instances across the board of this teacher just trying to, you know, squash these ideas because of potentially their own religious values. So how can we, you know, just like, the argument that like not all cops are bad people some teachers are not necessarily good for the progressive agenda so i don't know that we can in your words paint everything with a broad brush and just say we have to love all teachers because if you have anyone can be a teacher not in a not in a way of um it's easy but in a way of like you can go to to school and you can become a teacher there's no height requirements there's no whatever it's not like joining the military you could some people might not make it Anyone can be a teacher with those ideals. They're not going to test you on that. So how do you reconcile that, especially when they are shaping young minds? I think the answer is in funding and and better requirements. And one of the things that has it's been easy to attack the funding for public education because it's kind of a slippery slope. So we look at the mass exodus that came originally during the recession and then doubled down during uh, COVID. Do we have comparable figures? Like how many, just, I'm just curious, how many people resign from teaching positions mm-hmm. yearly or retire versus then? Yeah. So, the, I mean, the profession is down nearly 50% from its high going into the Great Recession. But there are people teaching our children, right? So this is how they, they have to accommodate that. Bigger class sizes, less accredited teachers teaching subjects. You know, there are fewer of them teaching more people, which and we know that there's an art, there's there's science behind having smaller classrooms that, you know, make them better learning environments for kids. And we also have people that are entering the field that aren't as accredited as teachers used to be. And that's why I say it's not as much loving that individual teacher because we've all had terrible teachers. It's more about loving teaching as a discipline and the field of education and having the right respect for it, because We don't, as normal citizens, understand the evolution of education in this country or pedagogy or all of these different, you know, avenues. So much, I mean, it it was fascinating for me having family in education and knowing about, you know, peripherally about somebody like Howard Gardner to go and see that he's still very, like, active and vibrant. Like, these are new ideas. Like, multiple intelligences are new ideas. Understanding how kids learn is kind of a new idea, and it's really exciting. And it takes a long time for that to filter through generationally. And then all of a sudden you have all these teachers that didn't study that and are being given some sort of like state textbook. Or maybe they're being given a state textbook in a place like Texas that talks about creationism. Holy fucking shit. So 
That's why I say it's it's more of a level setting about the field of education and the importance of having professionals in that field and not attacking them on an individual level based upon how that person might present in the classroom. But like we want really qualified educators. Same theory with police. Like my, I have a cousin, actually a few cousins in Canada who are cops and they are required to get a four-year degree. Then they are required to go through uh, de-escalation training and not just like for three weeks. They go through like incredible de-escalation training for a long period of time. They are fully formed grown-ups and adults with higher education before they're ever allowed to carry a gun or walk on a beat. Whereas we just take our cops, they go to, you know, school for a minimum amount of time in their, you know, and they could be right out of high school. And then they're walking the worst beat. Like we do it completely opposite here. And so it's not like we don't want to love cops or love teachers. So I think it's a very valid point to, to say that. But we do want to respect the profession and always be pushing for people to do better in it. We need law enforcement. We need education. We need all these things. We have to stop attacking maybe the people within it and start thinking better about the system itself. Yeah, I guess I'm just not confused, but I don't think our listeners, you know, and I'm being general, I don't think our listeners struggle with that. I think our listeners are mad, not mad at the the systems or I don't I guess it just varies as a, I mean, if, as a level set, we have to educate, but it doesn't seem like I guess it's not a concept I'm struggling with. So I'm wondering Almost why? <laughs> like, why are we? I feel like we have that. Great. And join us for part nothing <laughs> when we'll just stop no, no, doing this and just, do something that's else. Not the details of it, but I mean the general concept of like not attacking. I guess it's having kids in school right now looking at the school board meetings, looking at the attacks, looking at the when things get so visceral, the plot gets lost mm-hmm. and people start attacking over the wrong things. And so it's not that our list, certainly our listeners aren't confused right. and they're not misguided in any way, but we we're all getting drawn into the wrong conversations. So we we're legitimately on the left and on, and on the right having conversations about kitty litter and bathrooms because they're trying to, they're trying to drag us there. And so by actually lifting up the conversation and talking about pedagogy and talk, I mean, if you ever want to take a new right you know, screaming head off of the path of attacking the system of education to start talking pedagogy with them, mm-hmm. to, to show them how much they don't know about the thing that they're arguing about. Because you can fact check them all day long and we know that doesn't work, right? Yeah. But what does work is kind of like knowledge shaming them to help them understand that maybe, oh shit, maybe I'm out of my depth here. Yeah, I guess I just come, I think I was raised in the last generation of the teacher being right. And there wasn't as much parent intervention where like, oh my God. Yeah. yeah, so we were, you know, if if I was in trouble, they trusted the teacher, even if I said I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And there were times, you know, I was a little smart ass and there were times where like, I maybe wasn't a troublemaker, but I was me. I was 99 as a child. I was the same person. So there were times that teachers were, you know, shitting on me. And I was Mm -hmm. like, this one I didn't deserve. Like, hey, I'll put my (laughs) hands up and say the other time. So I guess for us, it was always that. Like, I remember I have this, (laughs) this vivid memory that makes me laugh all the time. My fifth grade teacher telling this girl's mom that her daughter was like stupid to her face. She was like, well, we all know this person isn't the, you know, the sharpest tool in the shed it was one of those like metaphors and i was like i'm standing right here Mm. and you're telling her mom to her face in front of me (laughs) listen i remember when you know 
I, I'm a little bit older and uh, remember a teacher in, oh God, I was like second or third grade. Oh, baby Max. Slapping another kid with a cigarette in her mouth. Oh. Yeah. Wait, the little kid had the cigarette in her mouth? No, no. It was a boy. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I like that. That would be great. Ah, shame. Yeah, he was chewing tobacco on his smoking. Yeah, no, she was literally smoking. The kid like ran down the hall and she like grabbed him and just fucking cuffed him, you know. Oh, no. Yeah. It sounds like I went to school in the 30s, but like. You did. Yeah, education's come a, like a long fucking way. And it's like, and we just, I just don't think we have the the right appreciation for how much it's evolved and over a very short period of time. And there's there's people out there that are, that are sick of it evolving too. So yeah. a lot of the criticism that I've seen at, you know, these very visceral school, school board meetings are, and this, I don't think this is a right issue. I think this is a left and a right issue where the common ground is dangerous. The common ground that people come to is, you know what? Just fucking stop talking about all of it and teach my kid how to read, write, and fucking do math. All right? Like, why are you? Why are you having any of these conversations? Like, I my kid was, went to a, like a super woke school, and we had very pitched battles over DEI. Interesting. Right? Still <laughs> Can't do relate. <laughs> Still do right? And that's in a, that's in the most progressive place that you can possibly imagine. So, if people return to the norm and return to the mean that's going to be fuck it just give me the three r's and take all of it out of the equation and that's you know reading writing arithmetic Mm. that's that's like reuse reduce recycle or yeah your generation yeah wait you said the three r's yeah reading writing Writing, arithmetic oh my god yeah it's an old colloquialism so yeah um we call it math (laughs) the two r's and an m thank you okay wait Oh, I just That's also got that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Took me a minute. Maybe I need to go back to school. <laughs> so, yeah. So one danger is the states take responsibility and understand that they probably have, like, not a bad shot with this Supreme Court of of withstanding some challenges to them designing, let's say, entirely ecumenical public curriculums. Totally possible. You could see that something like- Acupunctural curriculum? Yes, exactly. Right? Wow. You can see something like that getting the attention of uh, uh, federal courts and then to the, go to the Supreme Court and it not doing well there, right? They should have a school court and like a little judge and it's a child and he gets to decide because men are in charge. That's kind of adorable. As, according to that thing I read. Written by Thurgood Marshall. I yeah, know. whatever. I know where you were putting your emphasis, but you know, mm-hmm. back in the day. I don't care. Okay. I'm, I'm in this day. Oh, man. I am not doing well with 99 here today. I am struggling. <laughs> To bring this across the finish line. So why don't we pause and uh, for what, a station break. Are we going to fight? <laughs> no. <laughs> Confused. I'm just trying to get through post-show music. I'm waiting. You're talking. Oh, my God. He's fighting with me. I'm totally not fighting. Look, here's a teaser. In show notes of part three, I'm going to read the letter I wrote my sixth grade teacher when she was being mean to me. Mm-hmm. So as always, on Fucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, <laughs> Manny Faces. It is uh, produced lovingly produced by the all-powerful and clearly omniscient and always right 99. I'm not always right, but... Mostly. I am, yeah. Right. Except for the times that you're... Name one. Still right. Literally name one. Always right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And it's not... I mean, look, it's a burden sometimes. I wish I was wrong. I understand. Thank you. All of our original music is produced by Tom McGovern. And visit TomMcGovern.com if you haven't, or just follow Tom on Instagram, like do, do all the things because he's really wonderful and lovely. And for all the other things that fund the show, that make the show wonderful and great, go to unftr.com. And we'll catch you next time.
Did I? Middle school. Middle school. Hey, middle school. Not later or earlier, just somewhere in the middle. There is no greater thrill on earth than meeting a walking for the first time. <laughs>